Thank you for taking the time to listen to our podcast with Pastor Joseph Gibson at Cranberry Community Church. We hope God speaks to your heart through today's message. All right, so uh, we started a new series last week. I'm excited to get back into it. Uh, The series is called The Gospel of John. And uh, a shock factor, we're going through the Gospel of John. So uh, we're encouraging you to read a chapter a week. This week we're on chapter two. Last week it was chapter one. Uh, And a lot of what we talked about last week in chapter one really laid a foundation for what we're talking about today. Uh, So I really want to encourage you, if you weren't here or you missed that or you slept through it, to go back and watch that on Facebook or listen to the podcast because uh, it it really lays a foundation for this morning and I have a feeling it's going to lay a foundation for every week to come. So I want to recap just a little bit of last week what we talked about. Uh, We talked about really the first 18 verses of the Gospel of John. Uh, There are two things very very unique about the, these verses. First of all, uh, it's intended as a prologue. So what, what John writes in the first 18 verses of the Gospel of John is previewing, it's introducing what's about to happen in the rest of the Gospel. Uh, and it, it's almost as if John is saying in these first 18 verses, he's telling us what is about to unfold uh, coming in the rest of the Gospel. Secondly, we talked about how it's a form of poetry, those first 18 verses. That's why it feels like it's out of order. It's because it's a poetic format, uh, and it's actually the same format as we talked about in the book of Genesis. So we talked last week about how John did two very intentional things in John chapter 1, two very intentional things for the purpose of appealing to his Jewish audience. Uh, And the first I just mentioned is he spoke in the language of creation. He begins John chapter 1 with in the beginning, just like Genesis chapter 1 begins with in the beginning. And the second thing that he does is he speaks in the language of the tabernacle, which would sound really foreign to us, but it really connects with the Jewish audience. So what John does over and over, and we talked about this last week, I think we gave like four times that John referenced Moses or the tabernacle or the book of Exodus uh, constantly. And that's important because what we're going to find today in chapter two is he continues in that same vein. So with all of that said, let's read John chapter two. We're going to read the first 11 verses together. It says, on the third day, a wedding took place at Cana in Galilee. Jesus' mother was there, and Jesus and his disciples had also been invited to the wedding. When the wine was gone, Jesus' mother said to him, they have no more wine. Woman, why do you involve me? Jesus replied, my hour has not yet come. Just real quick, before we move on, uh, in that culture, that is not an offensive term to refer to someone, uh, just call them woman. But what it actually is, uh, is it's a distancing term. So it's almost as if you're referring to someone as madam or ma'am. So it's, it's kind of not... Not that motherhood relationship in the way that he's speaking to her, but it's not as blunt as it might appear uh, in Scripture. So on to verse 5, it says, His mother said to the servants, Do whatever he tells you. Nearby uh, stood six stone water jars, the kind used by the Jews for ceremonial washing, each holding from 20 to 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, Fill the jars with water. So they filled them to the brim, and he told, uh, then he told them, Now draw, out, draw some out and take it to the master of the banquet. 
They did so, and the master of the banquet tasted the water that had been turned into wine. He did not realize where it had come, it had come from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew. Then he called the bridegroom aside and said, Everyone brings out the choice uh, wine first, and then the cheaper wine after the guests have had too much to drink. But you have saved the best till now. What Jesus did here in Cana was the first of the signs through which he revealed his glory and his disciples believed in him. Now, there are a couple of things that I just want to pull out of this passage uh, and focus on really quickly. Uh, the first is the phrase that he uses where he says it revealed his glory. And the reason I want to point that out is because I just mentioned to you that last week was kind of a prologue into everything that's happening. And if you remember last week in John 1.14, John writes, the word became flesh and dwelt among us and we have seen seen his glory, the glory of the one and only son. So now what we're seeing is that beginning to unfold. So this miracle takes place and John says this was the, the first act that begins to reveal the glory of God. So we're seeing that connection between uh, verses 1 through 18 in chapter 1. We're seeing it begin to unfold. The second thing that I want you to take notice of here is a phrase that John uses uh, where he says what Jesus did here in Cana was the first of the signs uh, that, that revealed his glory, the first of the signs. So where Matthew and Mark and Luke would likely use the words uh, miracles here, they would say this was the first of his miracles, Jesus says, this, or John says this is the first of the signs. And in fact, John is the only gospel writer to refer to a miracle of Jesus Christ as a sign. So obviously the question that we're going to ask today is why? Why does John use the word sign where everyone else would use the word miracle? And as I was studying this week, I found that there's really one of two directions that you could go with this uh, uh, for using this language and this word. And they're pretty different directions. Uh, one direction you could go is the same way we... or. or one direction you could go is you could look at the symbolism within the story itself, and you could say, what do things represent within the story? The other thing that we could do is we could do what we did last week and follow the language and say, is John connect connecting us to anything in the Old Testament like he was last week with the creation and tabernacle? And here's what was so fascinating. Even though those are pretty different directions to go, they lead us to the same destination. They lead us to the same meaning either way you go. And what that tells me is it's probably not intended to be one or the other. It's probably intended to be uh, one confirming the other. So what we're going to do today is we're going to look at both. We're going to go in both directions, beginning with the language that John used. Uh, we saw last week that, that John is constantly using this language that's pointing us back to the book of Exodus and the person of Moses. So is it possible that he's doing this again? Uh, since I mentioned earlier, uh, John is the only gospel writer to use this term sign in, in reference to a miracle of Jesus Christ. That's where we're going to begin. We're going to look at the language of signs. And what we're going to find is this word, this language, appears in one place and in connection with one man in the Old Testament more than anywhere else. And you might guess it, it's back in Exodus and it's the person of Moses. Way more than anyone else in the Old Testament, when the Bible talks about signs, it's talking about Moses, and it's in the book of Exodus. So it's just like last week. Now, most often, this is in reference to the ten plagues uh, that, that God brought on Egypt through the hand of Moses. So just one of many examples I wanted to show you in Exodus chapter 10, verse 1 and 2. It says, The Lord said to Moses, Go to Pharaoh, for I have hardened his heart, 
and the hearts of his officials, so that I may perform these signs of mine among them, that you may tell your children and grandchildren how I dealt harshly with the Egyptians, and how I performed my signs among them, and that you may know that I am Lord. So God is actually speaking, and he's saying that what's going on here with the Egyptian people is he is performing signs. He's using that same language that we see in John chapter 2. So uh, if we move on from there, uh, since we're talking about Jesus' first sign according to the Gospel of John, then what I want to look at is Moses' first sign uh, in, the, in the book of Exodus. And that takes us to Exodus chapter 7. Uh, and it's pretty relevant to what we're talking about. So we're going to read the, the whole uh, section here. It's just five verses. Beginning in verse 17, it says, This is what the Lord says, By this you will know that I am the Lord. With the staff that is in my hand, I will strike the water of the Nile, and it will be changed to blood. The fish in the Nile will die, and the river will stink. The Egyptians will not be able to drink its water. The Lord said to Moses, Tell Aaron, Take your staff and stretch out your hand over the waters of Egypt, over the streams and the canals, over the ponds and all the reservoirs, and they will all turn to blood. Blood will be everywhere in Egypt, even in the vessels of wood and stone. Moses and Aaron did just as the Lord had commanded. He raised his staff in the presence of Pharaoh and his officials and struck the water of the Nile, and all the water was changed into blood. The fish, died, uh, the fish in the Nile died, and the river smelled so bad that the Egyptians could not drink its water. Blood was everywhere in Egypt." So if we're kind of following, uh, uh, keeping track of what's taking place here, uh, comparing John to Exodus, what we have in Exodus is we have Moses, uh, and what's going on with Moses is we have his first sign, and the first sign that God performs through Moses is he turns water into blood. And if you read all of the imagery that's taking place around this moment, it's all about death. There will be death to all of the fish in the river. It's death and death and death. And that is the, the first great sign of Moses. Now, if we fast forward into John chapter 2, we have Jesus. We have Jesus with his first sign. And his first sign is turning water into wine. And if we read uh, uh, the Old Testament imagery of wine, it always represents life and blessings and prosperity. Uh, and it is just the blessings and the life of God. So what we have in Christ is he turns the water into wine and we're talking about life. Uh, I can give you many references uh, on, on the Bible using wine in reference to life and prosperity. There's too many to list here. Genesis 27 and Deuteronomy 7 have a couple of them. But the thing to realize here is when we talk about Moses being affiliated with, with death, it's not the person Moses. Moses himself did not represent death. But as we read the scripture, what we find is the ministry that he brought about uh, in, into the earth was affiliated with death. The law of Moses, when we get into the Old Testament uh, or the New Testament, they call it a, a ministry of death. Meanwhile, the, the, the ministry of Christ, we call it the law of the Spirit or grace, is affiliated with life. So what we have is this imagery all throughout Exodus that's, that, that's kind of painting the picture of the law of Moses. And when we get to John chapter 2, it's contrasting that with the ministry of Christ, which is the ministry of grace. And you might say, uh, uh, Pastor, we're talking about the law. Isn't the law good? Well, the Bible says the law is really good. The problem with the law is we can't keep it. 
We're the problem with the law. The law isn't the problem with the law. And you might say, isn't it a little harsh to say that the law is associated with death? Well, I'm not saying it. The Bible says it. Uh, you can read, uh, we'll read together in 2 Corinthians chapter 3. Paul is talking about this and he says, If the ministry that brought death, which was engraved in letters of stone. So he's talking about the law of Moses right here. And he's saying that ministry brought about death. The ministry, the law of Moses, because the wages of sin is death, and the law of Moses defined sin. Do you see, see what's happening here? The law defined sin, and sin brings about death. So he's saying, this ministry brought about death, which was engraved in letters of stone, came with glory so that the Israelites could not steadily look steadily at the face of Moses because of its glory goes on in verse 8 to say, Will not the ministry of the Spirit be even more glorious? If the ministry that brought condemnation was glorious, how much more glorious is the ministry that brings righteousness? So what we have, Paul, he's, he's con, uh, comparing and contrasting the ministry that Moses brought, which was the law of Moses, to the ministry that Jesus brought, which was the law of the Spirit, uh, which we've gone into before as a reference to grace. Now, uh, I said it this morning already, but everything that we're talking about right now, it, it's foretold in the first 18 verses of John 1 because that was the prologue, the introduction to all this. This is just the unfolding of what John has already told us is going to happen. And we see that in John 1, 16 and 17. It says, out of, the fullness, out of his fullness, we have all received grace in place of grace already given. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. So John has already told us this is kind of established in the Gospel of John, and now we move into chapter 2, and we're watching it unfold. And that's one of the things I love about Scripture, is there is so much depth. And you could read Scripture uh, uh, every waking hour for the rest of your life, and then just start over and go over and over. And every time, God can reveal something new to you, because there is so much there. Now, I mentioned earlier, you can approach this story from two different angles and arrive at the same destination. Uh, and what we just looked at is, is the Old Testament, or uh, the language basically, uh, and the Old Testament imagery from Moses and Pharaoh leading us to this idea of the law versus grace. But what if we approach it instead from the, the symbolism that we find within the story itself? We want to look at the fact that Jesus chose, of all things that he could have chose, six stone jars for the purpose of ceremonial or ritual washing. Now, to someone who was rooted in Jewish culture, uh, Jesus could not have found a more offensive means of performing a miracle. Uh, the very idea of taking such a, a holy symbol... Uh, and, and filling it with wine would have been so offensive to the Jewish mind. But uh, the, the, this idea or, or this tradition of ritual washing, Mark 7 talks about it. John 3 talks about it. They would have arguments about it. What we find is it, it wasn't for the purpose of sanitation. Uh, it was for the purpose of just ritual and tradition. But what we want to do this morning is we want to find where did these ritual washing, washings originate? Where do we find them in the beginning? And just like with pretty much everything we've read so far, it leads us to one place and one person. It leads us again to the book of Exodus and leads us again to the person of Moses. 
So we find the origins of these ceremonial washings back in Exodus 30, beginning in verse 17. It says, the Lord said to Moses, make a bronze basin. Now this is, this is all in the context of setting up the tabernacle for the presence of God to, to dwell in the tabernacle. It says, the Lord said to Moses, make a bronze basin with its bronze stand for washing. Place it uh, between the tent of meeting and the altar and put water in it. Aaron and his sons are to wash their hands and feet with water from it. Whenever they enter the tent of meeting, the tabernacle, they shall wash with water so that they will not die. Also, when they approach the altar to minister by pre presenting a food offering to the Lord, and then he says it again, they shall wash their hands and feet so that they will not die. And this is to be a lasting ordinance for Aaron and his descendants for generations to come. You have to understand the original purpose of this washing, this ceremonial cleansing that we find in John chapter 2, is so that someone could approach the presence of God. Because if you tried to approach the presence of God in the Old Testament without this ritual washing, you would die. Whether that was to perform the duties of the priesthood or offer sacrifices, no matter the reason, if you didn't go through this ceremonial washing, you could not approach God. Now let's fast forward again to John chapter 2, and Jesus chooses this most holy of symbols. And to the religious leaders... They saw it as a defilement of these religious symbols. But to Jesus, I believe he saw it as a foreshadowing of what was to come. Because after this moment, whenever Jesus spoke of wine in some symbolic terms, it consistently symbolized one thing. So Mark chapter 14 and verse 23, we see an example. It says, he took a cup, and we find that this is a cup of wine. And when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, and uh, they all drank from it. And then he said this, this is my blood. He takes the wine, and he says, this is my blood. So if we're, if we're looking at John, and we're saying, why does he call it a sign? Because it's pointing to something within the story I believe this is exactly what it's pointing to, that, that you will no longer approach God by the means of ritual and tradition, but rather by the blood of Jesus Christ. To enter into the presence of God, you no longer wash your hands in the water so that you won't die. You wash yourself and cover yourself in the blood of Jesus Christ, poured out for you on the cross, and then you can enter into the presence of God. And that is the gospel of grace. That it's not ritual or tradition or you're earning it. Jesus earned it. You are covered in his blood. You enter the presence of God. It's the gospel of grace. We've taken two very different paths to get there, but we found the same destination. It's all about the grace of God. We see this pictured uh, so, so clearly in the story in John chapter 2. Now, uh, in addition to all this, I want to talk this morning real quickly just about an application that I see in this story uh, that we can take away from the story. As I'm reading it, uh, I'm reminded again uh, of uh, what we talked about last week with the story of creation in the book of Genesis. One of the many facets of creation that demonstrates kind of the sheer power, the sheer power of our God. Uh, we call it, it's a Latin phrase, ex nihilo, which simply means out of nothing. It's the reality that God created everything out of nothing. I think it was Albert Einstein who said there are two ways to live life. Uh, you can believe everything is a miracle or nothing is a miracle. 
I don't know how you don't believe everything is a miracle. I was just looking up a few things. Um, a, a caterpillar, a caterpillar has over 4,000 muscles, 4,000 muscles in its body. It uses 248 muscles just to move its head. Can I tell you that wasn't because of a big bang. That was by the design of a holy God. The human body, if you took your DNA from one cell and you stretched it out, it would be six feet long. What that means is if you took uh, all of the DNA from every cell in your body and you lined it up side by side, it would be 67 billion miles long. The oceans around us, we have identified about 240,000 species in the ocean. And what they believe is 91% of species have not even been identified. We don't even know what's there. We can't even map it because it's so vast. And church, we're still on our planet. We haven't even gone into the galaxies. Uh, it's estimated that there are hundreds of billions of galaxies. Uh, they, they've identified over 100 billion galaxies uh, uh, that, I mean, the vastness of our God. You know what I was thinking? Um, if every galaxy that we know of gave us $1 and we put it towards our national debt, it wouldn't even touch half a percent of what we owe. So it's all about perspective, I guess. No, seriously, though, um, I, I was thinking about something. Um, I, I may not look at, but, but I like to cook occasionally. Uh, and in fact, uh, every once in a while, we'll get a coupon for, for one of those companies that sends you all of the in ingredients, and all you have to do is put it together. And you know, if, if you have really good ingredients, you can make a pretty good meal. But if they ever send me a box and there's nothing in it, I can't make a thing. I have to have the ingredients. And that is what is so awesome about our God is nobody gave him the in ingredients to make all of this. He made it out of nothing. He is the ex nihilo God that makes everything out of nothing. Now here's the thing when we're looking at this story. In John chapter 2, when Jesus wanted to perform this miracle of water into wine, what was the point of the water? He is the ex nihilo God. He did not need the water to create the wine. Jesus could have said, let there be wine and there's wine. So why did he ask for water in the first place? Now, now part of that, I believe, is the sign that we've talked about this morning. But I think there's another reason and it's consistent with much of his ministry. And it's because Jesus involves humanity into his work. Jesus, when he's about to do something special, he will ask something of humanity that requires a step of faith, that requires some sort of action. Uh, if you consider the man uh, born blind in John, uh, John chapter 9, when he encounters Jesus, Jesus could have said, let there be sight, and it's done. But instead, Jesus made mud and put it on the man's eyes and said, now you go wash your eyes. He gave him something to do to be a part of this miracle. The man could have responded in many ways. He could have been very offended that Jesus had made mud out of spit, but instead he obeyed. When a sinner says, Jesus, save me, and Jesus says, okay, here's what you do, believe, you could respond and say, oh, it's got to take more than that. You've got you've to want more than that from me. But Jesus says, just believe. The man in, in uh, Matthew 12 with the shriveled hand, Jesus even speaks to him and says, 
stretch out your hand. I'm calling you to do something to receive this miracle. You stretch out your hand. And the man could have responded and said, I've tried that before and it doesn't work. It's impossible. And now we have this story uh, where he's speaking to the people uh, and, the, and he says, go fill these six massive water pots up with water and they fill them to the brim. Now they could have looked at him and they could have responded and said, what does this have to do with, with what we're asking you to do? What does ceremonial cleansing have to do? It's not relevant to the need at hand. And I think that that might be why in John chapter 2, verse 5, Mary leaves them with this. Do whatever he says. Whatever this man tells you, whether you think there is a connection to your problem, whether you think there is a purpose to, to what's going on, whether you think it is uh, relevant to the problem in your life, just do what he says. Uh, Renee, you can, you can come if you want. I, I was reading this week, I think it was Charles Spurgeon's notes, who, who talks about this, and he says, God often does this. He will issue his blessings and his provision and his miracles in the form of commands. And we receive them through obedience. And we see this throughout Scripture that, that when God wants to accomplish something, He will give a command. And sometimes the command looks like it has nothing to do with the problem at hand. Lean on the words of Mary. Whatever God tells you, do it. The answer isn't to trust and do nothing. The answer is trust and obey. Can you stand with me this morning? Lord, my prayer this morning is maybe you've been calling us to do things been waiting for you to say something that makes more sense to us before we listen. And my prayer, God, is that no matter what you say, whatever you tell us, we'll do it. I pray this morning that we will just embrace your grace. That we won't seek to earn our way into your presence. that we have been welcomed into your presence by the blood of the Lamb. Even this morning as Renee leads us, I pray that your presence would meet us here and that we would reach out and touch you in a new way. supposed to share something um, it may only be for one person in here hopefully it's a couple more than that but um, uh, I, I just feel in my spirit that, that there's uh, at least someone in here who um, whenever you feel an urging that could possibly be God uh, to, to do something what you've been waiting on is 
knowing that it's God. And when you know that it's God speaking to you, you say, then I'll take that step. And, and It's called a step of faith for a reason. And I'm, I'm reminded of, of Moses. And God spoke to him before all the plagues, before all of these things. And God said, I'll give you a sign. He said, your sign will be when you were standing on that mountain, worshiping God. Now, if you consider Moses in that moment, that does him absolutely no good. The idea that I'm gonna go through all this and then when I'm there, you're telling me I'll look back and I'll realize, hey, that was God speaking to me. But I believe that that's a word for someone this morning, that, that God is leading you into something and you won't have confirmation that it was God until God leads you through it. So don't wait until you know that you know that you know that you know that it's the audible voice of God telling you to do something. If it's something that, that is lined up with the Word of God, God's not going to tell you to go sin and then you say, oh, I thought God told me. No, but if it lines up with the Word of God and is consistent with the heart of God, take a step of faith and trust. That's how we learn the voice of God, is by trusting Him. So I'll get off the pedestal. Lord, I pray that you go with us this week and that we trust your voice, that we recognize your voice, that we respond to your voice. Pray we go in your peace and in your grace. In Jesus' name, amen. Church, have a great week. Thank you for listening to this week's message. Don't forget to subscribe to this podcast for a new message every single week. And as always, from all of us at Cranberry Community Church, may God bless you.